Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and also the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 29, verses 19 and 20. Please stand, if you are able, as we read from the Old and the New Testaments. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O oh now Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And from Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Please be seated. Before we uh, come directly to this text this morning, I want to um, add to the many prayers that we have for our people this request from Leslie Peterson for her son-in-law's family. Her son-in-law, Don, is married to her daughter, Maggie. And they heard, very tragically, of the sudden death of Don's brother, Gel, at 26 years old. Pray especially for Gel's mother, Lisa, who lives in Fort Myers in Florida. Let's bring our prayers to the Lord who loves us. Lord, we are reminded that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Lord, particularly, we want to thank you that you are working in the lives of Don and Maggie and Don's family. Father, our prayer is, is that you would bring a peace and an assurance of your love at a time when perhaps words just won't do the job. Lord, would you bring your calm, would you bring your comfort 
would you bring the reassurance and the offer of the gospel, Lord, to Don's family. And may that comfort Don and Maggie and Leslie and all those among us who mourn, for you are our great hope of resurrection. In Christ's name, amen. December was a terrifying month for disasters in America. You'll remember the news, December 10th from Kentucky, from particularly the town of Mayfield, Kentucky, of a Category 4 tornado that touched down and raised the entire downtown area. I wanted to show you this picture. That is the picture of a Category 4 tornado taken from a police dash cam. One of the people described the sudden destruction and the enormous power of the Mayfield tornado. One person interviewed said, if you took a house and put it in a bottle and shook it up and then poured it out, that's what's laying all over here. The man interviewed explained how he had rushed to his mother's house. And there was mom, he said, lying in her bed in the basement. And her full on thought was that her house was perfectly fine. She asked me if I'd grab some stuff from upstairs for her, and I just had to kind of break it to her, like, Mum, I'm sorry, but there's no longer any upstairs to your house. Then just 20 days later, you remember, came the news from Boulder, Colorado, of a second massive disaster. This time, wind gusts of 110 miles an hour propelled a monster fire threatening to engulf three communities just outside Boulder. A man called Hunt Fry was interviewed by the local television news, and he said, and he'd taken this uh, video of this on his uh, phone, uh, that he was in the local Costco store uh, when he and other customers were asked to evacuate by Costco staff who mentioned that the store might be on fire. And he noticed that once they'd calmly gotten everybody out, he saw them running, he said, like antelopes for the exit. It was just apocalypse, he said. And here's a photograph from Superior, Colorado. What was striking, though, was the difference between those two disasters, the difference in warning time between the two of them. They were both enormously powerful, both utterly devastating, but with the first, the tornado came no warning at all. Traveling at 190 miles as it plowed through the town, people had no time to react to the tornado. But in the second case, people knew in advance that the fire was coming. In fact, authorities had plenty of time to take people to safety. As a result, between the two disasters, 76 people died in Kentucky, and no one died in Colorado. You may be interested to see in Matthew 11 that Jesus draws a similar contrast of warning. He tells the people of Capernaum, and you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What were those mighty works in Capernaum? Well, they were the miracles of Jesus, but they were primarily his words. Jesus' words with plenty of time to hear them, warning of a disaster that was coming to human beings. There is a storm coming, Jesus says, and God would save you from it. But in Capernaum, they would hear not a word of it. It brings us to our topic for this morning, which is our investment in missions. What is a missionary? 
Well, there are lots of different kinds of missionaries, but a missionary announces God's coming storm and offers shelter from it in the person of Jesus. A missionary really is a lot like those staff in that Costco store, calmly ushering people, telling people, listen, the building is on fire, showing them where safety is, taking them to it, and then running like antelopes for the refuge that we have in Jesus. Again, to whom does God send his messengers, his missionaries? Well, to all those who need to hear his message, because our God is a missionary God. So we may as well face it. Here's what this text tells us. This is the motion before the house this morning. God is far more invested in the work of missions than you and I ever will be. But he has called us to join him in his great project to make disciples among all the nations. If that has always been true of God, we should not be surprised to find it here in Jonah chapter 4. God here who takes the initiative to send his reluctant prophet to the city of Nineveh. So if you would take a moment to turn to that with the words of Jesus from Matthew 28 in our minds. Here in chapter 4, we're going to look at three ways God shows his missionary heart. First, a brief word or two of background is in order. Here is our first point. God shows his glory by putting mercy before judgment. Imagine the year is sometime in the 8th century BC. The place is the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the height of Assyria's power. The prophet is this Jewish preacher who's been sent to preach a message of warning and judgment to Nineveh, calling upon them to repent, to turn to the God of Israel and away from their crimes. And the word that's used, you may have seen this in, uh, in Jonah uh, earlier in the chapter, chapter 3, verse 4, tells them very much like those reports from Kentucky, that if they do not heed the warning, their city will be literally overturned. The Jews, of course, had every reason to hate the Assyrians. Assyrian cruelty was legendary. They were the kinds of people who showed pain in ways to warn others that they should comply with the demands of Assyria. I won't go into the details of their cruelty, but they are quite appalling. You can imagine the young Jonah having lost family members to such cruelty, hearing stories not unlike those perhaps that were told after Auschwitz or the Burma Death March or the Killing Fields. How can there be forgiveness for such cruelty? Jonah certainly, as he comes to Nineveh, expects the Assyrians to suffer. This is the moral imperative. It was what he expected to be the automatic reaction of Israel's holy patron God to the outrages of an evil invader. And once he'd gotten to Nineveh, and how he got there, of course, is a whale of a story, but Jonah was only too ready to be the one who would give the Assyrians the bad news. But to Jonah's surprise, here's what we find right at the end of Jonah 3 or into Jonah 4. Here's what God actually does. When, Jonah, when God saw what they did, speaking of the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them 
and he did not do it. This is Jonah's commentary. You can notice here his displeasure, even as he writes it, that God has broken his own contract, he imagines, with the prophet. And we read what God had done, and then we hear Jonah's reaction. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I think this comes because there's something in all of us, fallen human beings, that thinks that we know better than our creator. The pride in us assures us that were the universe but placed in our hands, we could do better. Why? Well, at the root of it is because, as King Lear said, we believe we are more sinned against than sinning. Have you eaten of the tree, Adam? Well, it was the woman you gave to be with me. We are prone to judgment and we begin our court case with the Creator. Here's a line from Sidney Carter's poem. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me, I said to the carpenter, a hanging on the tree. This is Jonah's spiritual crisis that we're reading here. Literally, the language says what God has done was to him a great evil. I should have known, of course, that you would do something like this. He rants at God. It's quite funny as he in his rage, he lectures God about who God has supposed to do, be and who, how God is falling short. You can catch it even, as I said, in the way he reports what has happened. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it, God. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. I knew this would happen if we put you in charge. So here's the first contrast. It's between the messenger of God and the God who sends him. Jonah, his missionary, is apoplectically angry and the God of all grace reasons with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God loves his enemies. That is the glory of his love. He puts mercy before judgment. Second, verses 5 to 8, God shows his people their continuing need of his grace. It's difficult not to see this as a tantrum because it really is a tantrum. Jonah stomps off into the desert and he sets up, you'll notice, stadium seating, waiting for God to do the right thing and change his mind and destroy the city. I'm thinking that Jonah wasn't much of a builder because verse 6, God needs to make this other shelter for him, this plant which grows up overnight. I'm imagining personally Jonah awaking to find this giant uh, elephant ear plant uh, covering him, a bit like this one. And Jonah, we read, was very happy about it. But then, in this kind of roller coaster narrative, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, Jonah reports, that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. You'll notice there's no doubt in Jonah's mind as to who is responsible for his suffering. What is God doing? Well, looking at this with some distance, we might say this is either God being mean and small-minded, like we can be, or it is God loving Jonah by teaching him in the only way that he, Jonah, can presently learn. 
Jonah receives an undeserved gift, namely the plant, which saves his life, or at least his suntan, and God now takes it away to teach Jonah something. I don't want to pretend that I can't still act like a two-year-old, but I was remembering how uh, when I was six years old, I was in a German hospital. I was quite, quite ill. And my parents had left me in the care of these very nice German nurses on this ward, but I didn't know at the age of six and still don't much German. And uh, when my parents finally turned up, I'd been watching the clock, uh, they brought uh, a teddy bear with them, this um, teddy bear. We call him Klaus von Bear. Uh, this uh, teddy bear's first trip uh, was when I launched him into the air, throwing him at them in a fit of rage. I wanted you. This is not enough. And here is Jonah, having grown to love this huge silly plant as though it had done him enormous good that this was his savior, saving him from the scorching wind and the blazing sun. And now even this has been taken away from him. He is angry again but this time with the anger of an outraged justice on behalf of a plant. How dare God take it away? How dare God treat this innocent plant with such vindictiveness? I loved this plant. I think at this point, uh, God is, as I say, teaching Jonah in the only way that he can learn. The only difference between how Jonah feels about his plant and how God feels about the people in Nineveh is that where Jonah has invested absolutely nothing in the plant, God, verse 10, has labored over the people of Nineveh. He has grown them and now brought them to the point where they are ready to receive his mercy in repentance. God has the right by every virtue of every possible argument and more than Jonah can ever understand to show mercy to these undeserving people. And should God be merciful to his obnoxious and orthodox prophet and yet condemn these wretched, repenting people with judgment? Let God be true and every man a liar, Paul says in Romans, 8, Romans 3. In other words, if God isn't right about this, if God isn't right in himself in what he says, what does it matter what anyone else thinks. You know, a year after he wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton was commanding a slave ship off the coast of Africa. He writes in his memoirs that to his shame, he followed the other sailors into the hold of the ship and systematically, night after night, for a week, abused young women who were in chains there. This went on for weeks until he became deathly ill. And on what he thought was his deathbed, God broke him, showing him how wretched a man he was and how wretched a man Christ would die for and pardon at the cross. And Newton says then he understood what the word wretch meant in amazing grace. Who's to say how far God should show his mercy? If God showed his mercy to Jonah, shouldn't he also show his mercy to Newton? If he showed mercy to Newton, shouldn't he show it also to the Assyrians? If he showed mercy to the Assyrians, to whom then shouldn't he show mercy for if they would turn to him and cry out for his rescue? To me, to you, to our enemies, 
It is, you'll notice, the very roots and soil of the gospel that this is the extent of Christian mission. Romans chapter 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I make this point from this text. It's easy to try to make two gods and to try to live with them. A God of mercy for us, a God of benefit for us, a God who will give parking places to us, and a God of judgment for all the people we don't like, including the person who's just taken the parking space. Forgetting that we too, all of us, stand before his cross as we will stand before him on the day of judgment. But here is one God, the God of all grace. The more you see his mercy to you, the more your own heart will respond to the call of Christian missions. When you see the gospel, what else can be as important? And finally, God shows his own heart. He has invested himself, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? Jonah is a book about the heart of God for lost people. Hence, it is a book about missions. You know, translators have noticed something interesting about the verb here, which is translated concerned. Should I not be concerned? The verb was used in Hebrew of kings, giving or withholding mercy in judgment. And the power of the verb is in this. It means to do what one must do with tears in one's eyes. If Jonah had turned the conversation around and asked God earlier, do you do well to be angry? God could perfectly well say, yes, in my justice, I do well. But this is the heart of God's loving justice. He will go to extraordinary lengths to uphold the heights of his justice and to show the breadth of his mercy to his own enormous cost. So this is God's question to his student. Shouldn't I be concerned about this great city? Shouldn't God be concerned about the hundreds of millions who are trapped in their own sin and don't know there's a way out? Still today, when we look at the global map, there are huge swathes of territory where there's barely one missionary for a million people. Shouldn't God have a heart for those people? Shouldn't the creator even have a heart for cows and sheep who have no idea what's happening to them? If you don't think that matters to the creator, read Joel chapter 1, 18 to 20. Of course, the great question of Jonah is, on whom then does the payment fall for his justice? And the background of this is the one to whom all authority is given because it is upon him that the penalty has been laid at the cross. Shouldn't God be concerned that his own people still don't know the value of the gift that has been given to them because they are keeping it to themselves? That we are content to sit and watch while a few go to a task that calls for all of us to be involved 
is something that we need to think about. What should you do? Well, I think in closing, the first call to us here is to re-examine our own debt to God's great gift of mercy to us. Maybe like Jonah, we should experience great immersion over this. Extreme sorrow over our sin, extreme joy that because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul has been counted free. If we have been given such an astounding gift and the giver has asked us to pass it on, shouldn't we want to do so? Not because we understand it, not because we necessarily agree, but because it matters to him. What do you do after that? Well, there are a host of options, obviously. If you are looking to do just one thing this week, let me encourage you to write a letter of encouragement to one of our missionary partners, especially those overseas who are tempted to feel isolated. The list of our local, global, and campus mission partners is on the website, and if you're looking for an email address for someone, for, say, Sally or Emily or Ben or... Kurt and Jill, reach out to Michael, uh, our Director of Missions. But write perhaps just one letter this week telling one of our missionaries that you love them and are praying for their work, that they would be comforted and encouraged in Christ. You know, strategically, Stony Point has committed itself this year to discipling those, particularly in middle school and high school and college, in the calling of missions by giving them a formative experience in missions in our hemisphere and then have them return to share the excitement with the rest of us. You'll be hearing more about that soon from Zach and Michael, but let me commend it to you as an investment for prayer. I want to give you, uh, as I've promised, some resources to fire your own passion for missions. These books, I think, are ones that I have found invaluable. Don't Just Stand There by Martin Goldsmith, The Call to Missions to the Ordinary Christian, Footprints Over the Mountains, the remarkable story of Sundhir Singh in India, Christian Mission in the Modern World by John Stott, a classic, and an excellent resource for prayer for missions, Operation World. You know, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, and when he got there, he set about doing what he wanted, oblivious to the idea that God might want something different from him. I think it's worth asking ourselves whether our Christian lives have become just about us asking Jesus to help us to achieve what we want to achieve. How about you and I doing something radical and asking in this new year, honestly and genuinely, vulnerably, listening for an answer, what God wants you to do? what he wants you to do with your life, what he wants you to do with your resources, what he wants you to do with your prayers, what he wants you to do with the time that you have before you. It may be he will surprise you, and that wouldn't be such a disaster after all, would it? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a missionary God. It was your heart for missions that caused you to reveal yourself to the people of the Old Testament and preeminently to reveal yourself to all of us 
through your Bible and the words of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you that the gift that has been given to us in him is the best gift that anyone could ever receive. Lord, help us pray and devote ourselves to the mission that offers as many as will hear it the chance of life with you forever through Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.